Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Gary Taubes is an award-winning science and health journalist and a prolific best-selling author. He's a recipient of a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Investigator Award in Health Policy Research and the author of the latest must-read entitled The Case for Keto, Rethinking Weight Control and Science and Practice of Low-Carb, High-Fat Eating. Gary, welcome. I uh, think it's good to be here. So, so many great books from you, always provocative, always thought-provoking, and the latest is called The Case for Keto. And I love the way you open this book because you say, we, we tend to preach the choir sometimes in the world of wellness, but you open by saying, I'm not writing this book for the lean and healthy of the world. Your words, which I love. So my question to you is, and you talk about this, like who are you writing this book for? Okay, so I'm not all that interested. Well, there's two, two issues here. One is uh, whatever the lean and healthy people are doing, they should stay doing it, right? It's not broken, don't fix it. I believe that. And as we'll talk about later, and I talk about in the book, I think one of the problems is we've been getting a sort of lean and healthy person perspective on what we have to do to correct our health and our weight, and that's the wrong perspective, because what works for them doesn't work for us. And then, so I want to talk, I'm talking to these people who are struggling with their weight, so they're on this spectrum from overweight to obesity, from pre-diabetes, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, to full-blown diabetes, their blood pressure is going up. Those people need help, and they've been getting the wrong advice, if we're right. And everything I say can be caveated by if we're right. So I'm just going to say that now and leave it behind. And then I'm writing for their doctors. Because for 50 years, 150 years, the answers have been out there, but the doctors didn't buy into it. So you go on a low-carb, high-fat, or a ketogenic diet, you lose 50 pounds, your blood pressure comes down, you get healthy, and you go see your physician, your physician says you're killing yourself. You're eating butter. My God, man, you're going to die. So if you're going to keep eating butter, either find a different physician or go back to eating the way you used to be eating when you were 50 pounds heavier. So... The only way this works is a sort of societal solution is if the physicians understand it and the medical community understands it and we overcome their antagonism to it. So I'm always writing my books in some level to them and I'm always thinking of their criticisms, what they're going to say. Whenever I write something, I could think, well, they're going to say this. And so I'm always writing to them and trying to respond to them while I write. Well, you, you know, you mentioned metabolic syndrome, and that's come front and center now with COVID-19. You talk about comorbidity it used to be in a pre-COVID-19 world. If you were pre-diabetic or obese, these were diseases that over time would lead to a lower quality of life, perhaps a medication, and over time you would erode, unfortunately. However, with COVID-19, these diseases, metabolic syndrome, if you will, could lead to your death overnight with COVID-19. So the stakes are much higher. Right. The stakes are much higher and the medical research community understands that, but they still think that the solutions are much more obvious too. So there's always been two explanations for why we get 
well, why we get fat and then what, what causes metabolic syndrome and this cluster of disorders. And one is eating too much and lack of exercise. So, you know, if you're thin and you have metabolic syndrome, they assume it's because you're not exercising enough. If you're overweight and have metabolic syndrome, they assume it's because you're both eating too much and not exercising too much, but it's a caloric imbalance. So we believe it's what we're eating. They believe it's how much we're eating. And a lot of this controversy always comes down to trying to differentiate between these two hypotheses. Is it what we eat or how much we eat that causes the problem? So the big question, the, the multi-billion dollar question, why do we get fat? Okay, so <laughs> again, conventional wisdom, since we eat too much. And one thing I've talked about in my books, and I do talk about the history to some extent, until 1930, there were two theories of obesity. One is gluttony, the Falstaff idea. Here's a big heavy guy. There weren't that many of them back then. He likes to drink. He likes to eat. They also like to do other, you know, and that's why he's fat. So gluttony causes obesity or gluttony and sloth cause obesity. And the other was it's a hormonal defect. It's a great line from a character named Tarleton in the George Bernard Shaw playing Miss Alliance where he says some people put on weight no matter how much they eat. And these people have some kind of hormonal defect. And that was, those were the competing hypotheses. Um, 1930, a researcher named Lewis Newberg comes along and says he has proven definitively that people get fat because they eat too much. And this is a world back then when there's only maybe a half a dozen researchers, physicians around the world talking about the theory of obesity in the literature. You know, 10 papers are published every year, maybe less. And so one person says he's experimentally proved that obesity is caused by eating too much and the medical research community buys into it and it affects everything we think about ever after. And there's always this alternative hypothesis. In fact, as I discussed in the books, the animal experiments always confirm the alternative. Animals, you, if you can create an obese animal, that animal will get beast, obese even when it's doesn't eat any more than a lean animal. It's never about how much they're eating. It's always about whatever else is happening hormonally in this animal. And by the 1960s, researchers had settled the problem, had solved the problem of how fat tissue itself is regulated. And our fat tissue is primarily regulated by the hormone insulin, the same hormone that's dysregulated in diabetes. That explains why type 2 diabetes and obesity are so closely knit. And so the sort of simple explanation is insulin levels go up. We talked about metabolic syndrome. That's a disorder of insulin resistance. When you're insulin resistant, your body secretes more insulin to make up for it. And one thing insulin does is it tells your fat tissue to accumulate fat. So you raise insulin, you get fatter, you lower insulin, you get thinner. This is a very simplistic way to describe it. And what low-carb, high-fat ketogenic diets do is they lower insulin, as low as you can get it by diet. So, so translation, the wrong carbohydrates, sugars, processed foods, I'll, I'll throw in vegetable oils, that's what's contributing to obesity. Yeah, although I'm less sure about the vegetable oils for a variety of reasons. So 
So well, I'm curious, what are the, what, why are you so unsure about the vegetable oils? A lot of people have strong opinions on vegetable oils. Uh, a couple of reasons. First of all, when you look at the history as I have, so one of the observations you're trying to explain is why do obesity and diabetes appear in every country in the world when they switch from whatever their traditional diet was to a Western diet? So that traditional diet can be anything from like the Inuits living on caribou and seal meat and whale to the Maasai living on the blood milk and meat from the cattle they herd to agrarian populations in the Himalayas or populations in Japan and China and Southwest Asia eating mostly rice and wheat. Whatever they're eating, you add the Western diet and then you pretty quickly get obesity, diabetes, and all the chronic diseases that associate with it. And the primary thing you're adding in the, to those diets is sugar and white flour. Okay, so, and I wonder how much sugar, as we'll talk about, plays a critical role in particularly sugary beverages. But you have populations like the Japanese, for instance, which had been eating soy, if not soy oil, and I'm assuming, perhaps naively, that the fat content of the soy is the same as the soy oil. And yet you don't see obesity and diabetes until you add sugar and refined grains. Um, I would expect the signal from the vegetable oils to show up in the epidemiology. And it doesn't. That doesn't mean it's wrong because you can't really, you can't, the epidemiology is a mess. And I'm probably committing some heinous sin that I myself have documented on others by even saying that the epidemiology matters, but I would expect it to show up. And in the clinical trials, the few times it's been done, the signal is very mixed. So I'm very confident about the role of sugar. I'm pretty confident about the role of refined grains. I know if you remove them from the diets, people get leaner and healthier. And starches, if you remove the starches, they get leaner and healthier. By the time you've done that, there's very few opportunities to eat vegetable oils. <laughs> That's fair. Other than, so I don't know what, and particularly seed oils. I don't know what you're putting it on. I don't know what you're eating it with. So maybe you've inadvertently removed the seed oils that played a critical role. So when I talk to my friends about it, and we have the same friends, I say, I just, I don't find the evidence compelling. And I don't know what to make of it myself. Interesting. There's some great hypotheses, but what I try to do is, we've accused, I've accused the medical establishment of embracing hypotheses and believing them to be true that hadn't been rigorously tested. And this hypothesis, none of these hypotheses have been rigorously tested. So I just don't know what to make of it. That's fair. So. One of your big messages, you talk about it's not how much we're eating, it goes back to what we're eating. And so I'll segue to calories. And one of your biggest messages is the common idea that, quote, eating more calories than are burned is meaningless. It's similar to saying, and I love this, similar to saying a room gets more crowded when more people enter than leave. Rather, it's important to know why the room gets more crowded. So based on your research, why does the room get more crowded and why aren't we talking about this? Okay, and this is one of the truly mysterious aspects of all this. Again, if you think of the room in, in this metaphor as this fat cell, 
So we want to answer this question, why does a fat cell get fatter? Because our bodies, we've got like billions of fat cells, and when we get fatter, it's because our fat cells are getting fatter, or we're getting more fat cells and they're getting fatter. But one way or the other, we're, we're creating fatter fat cells, and you want to know what regulates that. So saying more calories enter your mouth and leave your body through energy expenditure doesn't really tell you anything about what's happening at the fat cell. The fat cell only sees, basically, it's enervated by the nervous system, and then it sees the circular, whatever's going by in the circulation, which includes hormonal signals to store fat or release fat, and then things like fatty acids in the form of triglycerides and glucose. And when you pay attention to what makes a fat cell fat, it's insulin. It's just dominates everything and this isn't this is textbook science it's nothing mysterious about it and we our insulin levels are for all intents and purposes regulated by our carbohydrate content until they get dysregulated by diabetes in which case they're still driven up and down by carbs but there's no counter regulatory actions going on so Fat cells get fat because of insulin. And I've interviewed, I, I had fascinating opportunity as a journalist. I can, I used to be able to interview everyone in the field. Now only about half of the researchers will talk to me. The other half think of me as a quack, which is unfortunate. Um, when I was doing my first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, I had the opportunity to interview all these researchers who did the research on fat metabolism when we're still alive which was most of them at the time. This was 2000, and a lot of this work was done in the 1950s and 60s. And they would say to me, so I would say, okay, so what makes a fat cell fat? The answer is insulin. Carbohydrates driving insulin. And then what makes a human fat? The answer is they eat too much. And I would say, well, you've got sort of two different hypotheses there. When you're talking about humans, it's this eating too much thing. And when you're talking about fat cells, it's this insulin thing. Why aren't they the same? And quite a few of these men, they're almost invariably men, although some of the best work was done by women, um, would say, you know, I never thought of that. Just never quite, they had been programmed to think that obesity is caused by eating too much. This is going all the way back to this Lewis Newberg case. Guy. So from the 1930s onward, obesity is always caused by eating too much, and diets work when you get people to eat less, and that's their dominant paradigm, and it's so dominant that even when they do the work themselves demonstrating that fat cells respond to insulin, not to how much you eat, but basically to how much and what kind of carbohydrates you're eating, they couldn't put the two together. I could tell one quick story, because I'm kind of... It's not that quick. Nothing I say is ever that quick. I'm ashamed that this wasn't in the book. So I'm currently doing my next book, which is on diabetes. And as I'm reading literature that I should have read from my earlier books, but I didn't because it's specifically about diabetes. So in 1972, I think it was, or 76, George Cahill, who's a leading metabolism researcher in the 60s and 70s at Harvard University, he did these seminal studies on diet. Um, and uh, excuse me, on starvation. And he was the one who showed that ketones are not pathological molecules, but are absolutely fundamental to fueling the brain during periods of food. They're completely healthy. And that was his work. And so he gives a banting address 
at the ADA, American Diabetes Association, on insulin metabolism, insulin and metabolism. And in it, he points out that people get fat when insulin goes up and they get thin when insulin goes down. And he discusses this in a pair. So, and the more time you spend with insulin low, the leaner you'll be, he says. And the more time you spend with insulin high, the fatter you'll be. And then at the end of the piece, he says, people get fat because they eat too much. Entirely different hypothesis. It's thrown in the last paragraph of this lecture because despite everything he had learned and everything he had said, that's what he believed. And you have to be a thin person, by the way, to believe that. <laughs> so you touched on, you mentioned re restricted eating there. I'm curious, how does intermittent fasting, you know, intermittent fasting, very popular right now. It works for me. It works for a lot of people. There's a lot of interesting developing science around it. What's your take on intermittent fasting and how it relates to ketogenic eating and just overall health, weight loss in general, your opinion? Um, Okay, it's interesting. Two years ago, there was a conference in Zurich that was attended by many of the sort of influential figures in the low-carb world. It was hosted by the British Medical Journal and this Swiss reinsurance company called Swiss Re in this beautiful conference center. And we were sitting around this enormous round table in this beautiful room with like windows overlooking the Alps in the distance. There's 50 people around the table and I took a poll I said, let's, I want to know how many people are intermittent fasting. I can't remember if Jason Fung was there. <laughs> Megan Ramos was there, his associate who helped him come up with this. Anyway, of the 50 low-carb influencers at this table, 45 of them were doing intermittent fasting, either skipping breakfast or skipping dinner or including me. And I did it. I tried it as an experiment four years ago, five maybe. And I always thought it'd be difficult to do. I cook breakfast for my kids every morning and my family and bacon and eggs are cooking. It's hard to not think about eating. But I was traveling for three days. So all I had to do was not eat breakfast food, airplane food for three days in the morning. And at the end of three days, I wasn't hungry anymore. And I lost a dozen pounds over the course of about three or four months that I never thought I really had to lose. I thought I was at a healthy weight and then I got at a healthier weight. I think it works because it extends the period of time at which insulin levels are very low. So in the book, I talk about sort of the, how insulin, there's a phenomenon we don't talk about that much, but the people who study fat metabolism know it very well, which is fat cells are what they would say are called exquisitely sensitive to insulin. So this term exquisitely sensitive would show up in the in the literature and the academic papers. So if there's even the tiniest bit of insulin in the bloodstream, your fat cells will detect it. And that insulin will tell them to hold on to whatever fat they're carrying. And so if you want to get in fat out of the fat cells, and this was Rosalind Yallow and Salomon Burson who developed the technology to measure hormones, Yallow won the Nobel Prize, 1965, Burson gave a banting address at the American Diabetes Association, said, if you want to get fat out of the fat cells, you need the negative stimulus of insulin deficiency. So the fat cells have to not be able to see insulin in the bloodstream. And if they're not, then they're going to mobilize fat from their fat cells. They're going to, the fat cells are going to get leaner and the 
lean tissue is going to burn that fat. And what that's what's happening in the morning before you wake up, although your pancreas and your brain will sort of stimulate some insulin secretion in the morning, even before you eat, which might be why you wake up. People might wake up to eat breakfast. And, uh, but if you get into intermittent fasting, you prolong the amount of the time in the day in which the fat cells are going to be mobilizing fat and your lean tissue using it for fuel. So to use a term I don't like very much, you would kind of set your set point a certain amount of pounds lower because you would be burning purely fat for fuel for a much longer part of the day. And that fat is coming from your fat tissue. That's my take on that. Well, I, kind of a lot. Yeah, it's important to note because some people will say, maybe they're, you could call them critics, will say it's about calorie restriction. But and it, Well, it's interesting. It's one of the few areas you could really test. And you could, because what I gave you was a hypothesis, and what they gave would give in response to the hypothesis. So instead of eating 3,000 calories a day spread over three meals, you're eating 27 or 2,500 spread over two meals. You don't notice the difference. Now, when I did it, I thought, and a lot of people I've talked to, you know, I gave up breakfast. So I eat dinner around 7 o'clock. I go from, say, 8 o'clock at night to 1 in the afternoon without eating. Uh, then I have a big lunch and a big dinner. And in between, I'm basically eating nuts all day long. I used to. I gave up the nuts. That's you gave story. up the nuts? Why do you give up the nuts? Was, was that just, That's, is there a health can, reason for that? Or We can get back to that. It was an experiment for health reasons. And unfortunately, it worked. So... And I'm stuck not eating nuts. Anyway, the point is between lunch and dinner, I would have guessed I was eating three, four, five handfuls of nuts. First was almonds, and I switched to macadamia nuts, which are handfuls like 500 calories. So I very much doubt I cut back on calories. I just condensed it into, but you could do that experiment. It's difficult, and people really have to care. But you could actually be one way to test the calorie versus calorie idea, which is just calculate how much calories people are eating between three meals a day with snacks and then run them in on that and then randomize them to a various intermittent, you know, to an intermittent fasting routine or time restricted eating that can be the same thing and keep the calories the same. I know, um, Oh, Ethan Weiss yeah. published an experiment recently at UC San Francisco where he kind of argued it was the calories. I, yeah, I thought the experiment was interesting, flawed. I would have designed it differently to really rigorously test this. It also wasn't. There's a possibility it works better, for instance, if you're very low carb. So your insulin, you're used to your insulin being low anyway. So all these things would have to be tested, but I don't find it, even if you're eating fewer calories, then the question would become, why aren't you hungry? And you have to answer that. So all, all the word insulin comes up quite frequently and, and carbs and sugar come up quite frequently. So going back to, to carbs, in your opinion, what, what carbs are acceptable? You're not a fan of carbs, but what carbs are acceptable in your opinion? Well, first of all, it depends on the person. Remember, we started off saying lean and healthy people can tolerate the carbs they're eating. So, well, maybe put know. them in groups: people who are lean and healthy, and then those who are, you know, looking to get there, who who are on a yeah. journey, if you will. Yeah. So, for those who are lean and healthy, I mean, I still think sugars and 
uh, highly refined, you know, high glycemic index carbohydrates, uh, white flour are a mistake. I think if anything causes the chronic diseases that beset us, like heart disease, if any, there's any dietary cause to it, it's sugar first and, and the refined grains second. And I would avoid those if I want, even you know, if I wanted to be as healthy as I could. If I appear to be healthy anyway, then like I said, have a good time. And then you're lucky and go out to eat and eat pasta in front of me and make me feel bad. Um, the, uh, for those of us who struggle with our weight and our blood sugar and our blood pressure, I think that carbohydrates are responsible. That's the argument I make in the book, working through primarily through insulin. In which case, you know, the carbs and green leafy vegetables are fine. They very it's a few digestible carbohydrates. These used to be known as five percent vegetables back in the early twentieth century, because five percent of the calories come from carbs. So a cup of broccoli has something like twenty calories worth of digestible carbohydrates. It's not, you know. Um, and these low-carb, high-fat ketogenic diets were traditionally animal products, meat, fish, fowl, dairy, not including milk, and green vegetables. And that's how I ate it when I started, and it worked for me, and they're fine. I'm not so sure about potatoes and sweet potatoes. They may be fine for some people. They're not fine for me. And if I were trying to lose a significant amount of weight, I wouldn't include them in the diet. I think they're going to stim their carb rich. Nuts are interesting just because they're, most of the calories come from fat, but they still have a significant amount of carbohydrates. And those who eat them know that they're easy to overeat. And that could be that it's easy to overeat the calories, or it could be that the carbs in it still stimulate enough insulin secretion that keeps you reaching for more. So, and then alcohol. It's funny, writing this book on diabetes, the invention of insulin, man, until 1915, the diet for diabetes was basically animal products. It was the same diet we're talking about 120 years later for obesity and all, all health problems. So you had insulin, some kind of insulin dysregulation. You lived on animal products and green vegetables and eggs and butter and bacon. Same thing, the advice, it's in every textbook. And then, of course, the diabetes people went off the rail. And we don't have time to get into that two years from now. So what about, I'm curious, legumes? Talked about nuts, legumes. Yeah, I think legumes are fine for the lean and healthy in the world. Yeah. But I don't think, I mean, they're problematic for the rest of us. You know, again, the idea is for those of us who gain weight easily, we have to keep our insulin low. And the only way we know we're doing it is by sort of minimizing the carbohydrate content of our diet. And that's, that means no beans, no legumes. Um, but for the lean and if I was a marathon runner instead of a former third-rate football player, I'd be perfectly happy to eat legumes. 
So it's funny, you talk about insulin and monitoring how your or understanding how your body responds. And a lot of companies right now doing the, the glucose monitoring, you put it on your arm, Levels is doing that, NutriSense. It's interesting. Is that, in your opinion, is that so? Is that the, the future? You got one right there. You got your levels right there. You got it. I'm going to freestyle, Libra. Yeah. I never, I haven't used it yet, though. I've had it for about two months. Yeah, well, it's interesting because more and more it's going to be used for diabetics. They're, they're inexpensive, they're easy to use, they're relatively unobtrusive now. And when I'm talking to physicians who think like we do in the diabetes world, they see them as behavioral modification devices. Because now you, within minutes of eating, you see what the food you ate did to your blood sugar. And if you want to keep your blood sugar low, you don't eat those foods anymore. And so for the most part, that means people are going to be giving up sugars, grains, and starches. Okay. Uh, there'll be other individual variations, but, you know. So I think it's interesting. I'm not, when I talk about being interested and going back to the first question, who I'm writing the book for, I'm not trying to maximize people's sort of physical performance. And you, we could talk about longevity and we will, and I have even issues thinking about that. What I want to do is sort of get rid of the, get people, originally this book, The Case for Keto, was called How to Think About How to Eat. And I wanted to sort of reset how people should be thinking, this is hubristic, but how people should be thinking about eating when they suffer, when they're on, they, they fatten easily. And the glucose monitors can come in handy, but for these people, again, once you tell people don't eat these foods, you don't really need a glucose monitor to find out what those foods do to you. And if you had a glucose monitor, CGM, and you found out, for instance, that you could eat, say, brown rice, and it didn't raise your blood sugar. And so you continue to eat brown rice, and you either don't lose as much weight as you would like, or you start to gain weight back. You're still going to have to give up the brown rice to find out whether the diet will work without it. Then maybe you shouldn't have been eating the brown rice to begin with, because often a food might not stimulate blood sugar but it will stimulate. The reason your blood sugar doesn't go up is because you get such a vigorous insulin response from that food, and you're not measuring insulin, you're measuring. And back, the original problem with the glycemic index, Jerry Reven, who's a Stanford researcher, kind of conceived of the metabolic syndrome idea. Jerry hated it. He said it's not the carbs, it's the insulin, stupid. So if we had a device that allowed you to measure both, that would be interesting. So on the subject of CGM and, and sugar, we all know you're not a fan of sugar. And it, it, in the keto community, there are a lot of sweeteners. P people still like their sweets. And, and there are a lot of keto-friendly treats, sweets, if you will. There's lots of sweeteners out there. There's all the alls. There's, you know, the allulose, xylitol, erythritol, monk fruit. I go on and on. So what's your take on all of the keto-friendly sweeteners, if you will. And I'm curious, what, is, what do you do when you, when you want something? Got <laughs> Try to leave the kitchen, walk away slowly. <laughs> I'm serious, my wife recently, uh, my wife is a mostly vegetarian, so she can't, she avoids the obvious source of carbs to keep her weight under control, but she can't 
do the keto. And the show said, I can't do the keto thing. I can't eat the foods you eat. And I don't even like when you eat the foods you eat. And so she recently bought uh, Atkins bars because she had started baking during the initial COVID months and put on some weight. Now she had to satisfy her sweet tooth and get the weight off simultaneously. And so she buys 20 Atkins bars. They go into this drawer in our pantry where the kids, the, the crap health food bars for the kids are. And I'm the one who's eating them. Okay, because I know they're there, and I know they're relatively harmless, right? They're benign, they're keto-friendly, and I don't particularly like them. I don't like the taste of sugar alcohols. I don't like the aftertaste. And so after I eat it, I kind of wished I hadn't eaten it to begin with, but it doesn't stop me from craving it the next day. And I finally said, look, if you're going to continue by Atkins Bar, just hide them from me. And she said, well, they're in a drawer. And it's just hide them so I don't know where they are. If I don't know where they are, I won't eat them. Okay? And that's kind of what I do. Are there some sweet... On one level, I think all these artificial sweeteners are probably better than sugar. Because if nothing else, we're consuming them at, you know, one one hundredth the dose. They're so much inherently sweeter. I think saccharin is 300 times as sweet as sugar per unit weight. So... You're, for the sweetness of sugar, you're getting one three hundredth the amount of saccharin, and then in theory, you're not really metabolizing it. Um, I have friends who swear by allulose, friends I respect, and they might be right. I have one friends who swear by stevia and its metabolites, and I respect them. Uh, it's at least it's natural. It's been around for four hundred years have a pretty good idea that it doesn't cause people to grow three arms or anything like that. In general, I just think people are healthy, are better off trying to get rid of their sweet tooth. Because as long as they have it, they're always going to be tempted. And right. someday they're going to find themselves in an airport with a delayed flight in a Cinnabon store with that smell wafting out. Instead of nauseating them, they're going to go, I've got to have it. <laughs> and it's a slippery slope. Um, Got it. Well, part of it's being self-aware and knowing what you can handle, what what you have the will. You know, talk about willpower, like what what you can say no to, what you can't say no to, and some people can and some people can. It's getting an understanding of that. Well, it's funny because I so after I wrote the book, The Case Against Sugar, and at the end of the book, I make this point that nobody tells smokers to smoke in moderation, right? It's like don't smoke. If you're a smoker, we know smoking causes lung cancer. Just quit. And we're pretty confident that quitting requires going cold turkey and anything else is going to lead to continued smoking. The addiction is that strong and it could be the same for sugar. And if arguing in the book that sugar is, the, to me, a probable cause of diabetes, and if it does cause diabetes, you don't tell people to eat less of it. You can say sugar or too much sugar causes diabetes. You say just don't eat it. So it's sort of a mindset where avoiding this is better than not avoiding it. And I don't even know why I went into this. What was the original question? Well, just we were talking about the sweeteners and understanding just in oh, general, being self-aware and understanding your yeah. body, understanding your limits, understanding, wait, I, yeah. I can't have that because I just can't have one slice or one chip okay. or whatever well, it may be or so one drink or whatever yeah. it might be in life. When it comes to sugar, I'm one of these people. So I go to eat with my wife. My wife, she can smoke a cigarette once a month, whereas I'm an ex-smoker. If I smoke a cigarette, I'm back struggling with an addiction. She can order dessert after dinner. 
and have two bites and push it aside. And I'll be sitting next to her and I want to be virtuous, so I don't order dessert, but then I'll have a taste of hers. And as soon as I have the taste, I'm locked in. I don't know if you've had this experience, but now I'm having this sort of conversation, my, my head, like the, go ahead, eat it, you want it. It's like, eat the whole thing. And I'm trying to get the waitress to come over and take it off the table so I don't eat the whole thing. And nowadays I just go, yeah, the hell with it, I'm eating it. And when I've lectured on this, I've asked the audience, how many people are like my wife who can take two bites and push it aside? And how many are like me where it's as long as it's actually the more you eat, the hungrier you get for it, which is an interesting phenomenon. One bite doesn't make me sated for sugar. It creates a fierce urge to eat more. The same, and you see the same phenomenon with alcoholics, like having a glass of wine doesn't sate their urge for alcohol, it triggers binge eating or binge drinking. Anyway, it seems to be about 50-50 in the audiences. But it always comes down to sort of the more you learn about yourself, and this is a learning experience about your own interactions with food, the more you learn indeed what you can control and what you can't, what's a slippery slope. So Thanksgiving, I had a couple of pieces of pie because I knew that I wasn't going to eat it after Thanksgiving. And that we weren't at our home. We were socially distanced on a friend's patio. And I, if they, she had said, why don't you take the pie home with me? I'd have said, absolutely not. Because if it's home, I'm going to eat it. And I don't want to eat it after today. It's like I fell off the wagon. I want to get back on the wagon. So I'm going to come back to overall philosophy. I, I love the Michael Pollan quote, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. A lot of people love that quote. But in the book, you say, wait, hold on. I'm not a fan of that. So you have to explain <laughs> why you're not necessarily a fan of that famous quote. Okay, I'm going to leave out the fact that I'm jealous of Michael because he got this position to teach a endowed chair at Berkeley teaching science journalism 20 years ago that I was one of the applicants for. And I thought I was much better. He's a beautiful writer, but I, he wasn't a science journalist. So we're not even going to discuss that. <laughs> um, I completely agree with Eat Food. And I often, again, when discussing with my wife what we're feeding our kids, I often, his line about food-like substance, I just say, look, this isn't a food. I don't care what it says on me. It's a food-like substance. I don't want him to eat it. Um, not too much is an interesting comment. Not too much is a way of thinking where you think, how do you know you're eating too much, right? You're either feel bloated after the meal or you're gaining weight or you're fat, heavy or obese, suffer from overweight or obesity. So the only way you're eating not too much is because you're getting heavier. And then the idea is you're supposed to be able to stop from getting heavier by eating less. Michael doesn't go into any of this, but he should. So not too much is calories in, calories out. If you're eating, if you're getting heavier, eat less. That's what he's thinking. That's what the idea is. And if you're heavy, if you're obese and you're eating, quote, too much, eat less. To me, that's as we said, it's interesting, I mentioned the animal experiments before, so you could lesion the bench. This was the first animal model of obesity. Actually, the first the animal model that the leptin came from, the hormone leptin, is the OB mouse, and it was developed at the 
Jackson Labs in Maine, and it's a genetic mutant, and they breed it, so you've got a whole strain of these mice that get obese, and these mice will get obese even when half-starved. So you take a lean mouse, you figure out how much that eats every day, and then you feed the obese mouse half of that, half of it, and the mouse still gets obese. So what does it mean to eat too much? If we're like that, what does it mean to eat too much if you're going to get obese even when you're eating half, or stay obese even when you're eating half as much? And then mostly plants just assumes that's the healthiest way to eat. It's based on this field of observational epidemiology. In his book, it's interesting, he actually quotes nutritionists saying, well, we don't really have studies clinical trials showing that if people eat mostly plants, if you're randomized eating mostly plants versus mostly animal products, you're going to be healthier on the mostly plant diet. Those studies don't exist. What we have is the fact that most of us think this way. So that's where I'm going. Most people like that because I think most people can agree, eat a lot of vegetables. But when we talk about meat consumption, there's a lot of debate around how much meat, what type of meat, is there too much meat? Not to mention, I think everyone agrees processed meat, not so good, but... Not everyone, remember. Not, those, <laughs> not most people. I'd say there's almost a consensus. In the conventional world, they believe that processed meat is not... But it's a big question, and I've talked about this in the podcast. Like, as I've aged, I'm 46 now. Like, I found my... For me, I'm also you know, a little bit of a genetic freak. I'm 6'7". I, I at one time had sky-high homocysteine that I got down, like, overnight through supplements. But for, for me, when I have too much red meat, my markers go in the wrong direction. I dial it down, they come right back. Markers, I talk about LPA, LDL, ApoB, like some of the heart disease markers. But like, I'm just curious, that's me personally, everyone's unique, but like, where does that, where does that, I'm just curious your take on the meat conversation. Okay, so like I said, there are no clinical trials comparing meat-rich diets to vegetable-rich plant-based diets and showing that the plant-based diets are better. That's what you need to test that. So the hypothesis is meat is bad for us. It causes heart disease and whatever else you want. It shortens our lives. Therefore, we should eat mostly plant diets. This is leaving the environment out of it, leaving ethical arguments out of it, both of which are vitally important, but we're only concerned with the health issue. So the clinical trials that could tell us that a plant-based diet is a healthy diet and that the more plants, the better, don't exist. They just don't. I wish they did, but they don't. And if to do them would be very expensive, so we'll probably never do them. What we have is this field of observational epidemiology. And this is what I got into this world because of, I had been a, originally a physics journalist. I had a physics background and then I, did a couple of books about uh, scientists who discovered non-existent phenomena. The second book was called Bad Science, and I had friends in the physics community who loved my work, and they said, if you're interested in bad science, you should look at the stuff in public health. And they were thinking about this field of risk factor epidemiology, and that was my first big article for the journal Science, and it's since been cited over 500 times, even though a journalist wrote it. Um, so the idea is you take a cohort of people, the most famous is a nurse's health study, where 130,000 nurses, and you send them around surveys asking what they eat, food frequency questionnaires, and maybe whatever else you might be interested in, like prescription drug use, for instance. Are they on uh, you know, hormone replacement therapy? It was a famous mistake 
of the women's health and uh, the nurses' health study. And so you figure out what they're doing, what they're eating, what their health status is, and then you follow them for as long as you can, 10, 20, 30 years, and you check in and you say, what's your health status now? What are you eating now? What's your health? You, know, you see what diseases they get, who lives, who dies. You compare the healthy people to the unhealthy people. The people who they all supposedly started off pretty healthy, but now 20 years later, some got diabetes and heart disease, some got obese, some didn't. And you compare the ones who got ailments to the ones who didn't. And then you look to see what they were eating differently. And you assume that what they were eating was the reason why some got healthy and some didn't. So you basically generate a hypothesis. And when you do that exercise, that the people who stayed healthy tended to eat mostly plants compared to the people who didn't. They also tended to drink a hell of a lot less sugar, okay? And they drink less beer, and uh, they tend to be higher socioeconomic status, and they go to better colleges, and they have better educations, and they're have better doctors and they're more health conscious in general. And you don't know what of those factors causes the different, this difference in health, but the people who do those studies do it so they can tell us how to eat. So they assume that the mostly plant people, the reason they're healthier is because they eat mostly plants. And it's a logical fallacy. It's not a subtle logical fallacy. It's a, you just can't do it. This is the causality doesn't association doesn't mean causality. The way they do those studies are terrible. I mean, I've spent a lot of my life studying them, and they complete, they have zero, almost zero interest in finding out if their hypotheses are wrong. So when I was a kid, my mother used to eat each vegetables, right? She was health conscious. So eat your vegetables. She didn't allow sugary cereals in the house. She didn't have, we didn't have sodas in the house, although we had plenty of juice. And we we're supposed to eat our vegetables with every meal. There was always a green vegetable in the meal. We always had a salad after the meal. That was considered a health conscious behavior. Okay, if you look at the people who were health conscious, they're the people who eat mostly plants, who eat vegetables. They're not the people who go to a restaurant and just get steak and mashed potatoes. They get steak and mashed potatoes and broccoli or steak and broccoli or just broccoli. So when they do these studies, what you're identifying is who's health conscious and who's not. Not necessarily which foods are going to make you live longer and which aren't, because these studies can't tell you. And that's why we think we should eat mostly plant diets, and other than the environmental ethical issues. So I'll go back to the big question, my last question. Look, nutrition science, I think the point you're making, it's so flawed. Nutrition science is religion, lots of strong points of view, lots of money at stake. There's just, and I think we're at this point, we've advanced the conversation quite a bit, I think, in, in 2020, or, or have we? I'm curious, like, what is the, can we ever get this right? Or is this just going to be the debate that just goes on forever? Um, on some level, it's going to go on forever. Um, <laughs> however... Uh, a couple of things. Have, I mean, things have changed. And I point this out in the book. When I first started writing about weight, two, a year, 1999, I think I did my first story in the obesity epidemic in 1998 when it was new-ish. 
there may be a half dozen to a dozen physicians in the world who think like we do now. And half of them had written diet books, and they would prescribe low-carbohydrate, high-fat diets to their patients, and their patients would get healthier, and then their patients would see other doctors, like their cardiologists or whatever, and their cardiologists would say, you're killing yourself. And back then, diets, the only way diets were thought to work was by eating less, and a high-fat, ketogenic diet of the kind I eat and I think is probably ideal for people who suffer with their weight, was considered deadly. So the idea was if you eat Atkins, it's going to kill you. Atkins was keto before keto was keto. And it's going to give you a heart attack. When I first wrote about this in an infamous New York Times Magazine story, I ended it with me sitting at my local diner in New York, Joe Jr.'s on 12th Street and 6th Avenue that I still miss. And I'm sitting there at breakfast eating eggs and bacon and sausage and waiting for my heart to blow up. Because that's what it was supposed to do. Now, 20 years later, there's probably a few tens of thousands of physicians around the world who prescribe these diets to their patients and think it's the single best thing they could get their patients to do. And the rest of the world is saying, not that these diets will kill you, but that other diets are as good. So even the vegan vegetarian people will say, so 20 years ago, it was all about not eating fat. It was Dean Ornish and Nathan Pritigan, and you, they were all very low-fat diets, which by de facto happened to be mostly plant. Now it's mostly plant, and you're supposed to eat a healthy vegan or vegetarian diet, which means that it doesn't have sugar and refined processed grains and vegetable oils in it. So we've actually changed the conversation significantly, and this came pretty much from people outside the nutrition research community. Um, the thing, the advantage we have, because the question is always, why listen to somebody like me? Especially when I'm on a show, a limited show, I'm talking fast, I sound like I'm selling something. Um, the answer is you can test it yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. And this is one of the things, I mean, nowadays, first of all, this whole discussion has gotten outside of the gatekeepers of the medical community. So you can do your homework. You could read the literature. Like, as I say in my books, I want you to read it and read them critically. Okay, go check the references if you want to, if you doubt what I'm saying, and then try it. Just, if you try it, do it right. Don't do it half-assed. Don't do your own weird version of it. Don't try to cheat before you've even started. It's like trying to quit cigarettes by saying, I'm only going to smoke Indian cigarettes, or I'm only going to smoke five cigarettes a day, or let's do it right and see how you feel. And set a time limit, a month, two months, something that's doable. And then treat it, I say, like, like a smoker trying to quit cigarettes or an alcoholic trying to quit alcohol, just every day get up and say, I'm going to do this, and then see how you feel at the end of a month or two or three. You could also get your lipids tested, your blood sugar tested, all these other things, so you could convince yourself you're not killing yourself, hopefully. It's just the world has changed dramatically, so what was sort of a closet quack cure is now something you could do as a piece of personal self-experimentation. And if it works for you, you could stick, you could decide, is it worth, like, do I miss cherry pie so much that I can't eat this diet, that it's worth me weighing 50 pounds heavier? Or is beer 
something I can't give up, or my Coca-Cola is something I can't give up. I love what you said. Test it yourself. See how you feel. We will close there. Words of empowerment. Test it yourself. Gary, thank you so much.